Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather in your house and in your name uh, to look at truths that really do matter. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised, and we believe that you are still a God of miracles. And so I pray that tonight you would be our instructor. We pray that you would help us understand and be motivated to live a miraculous life, keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, uh, supernaturalism, the backbone of evidentialism. There's two big words there with an ism on the end. That could be intimidating. For those of you who have been with us, what do we mean by evidentialism as opposed to classicalism? When it comes to classical apologetics, we've moved now into evidential apologetics. What's the difference? Anyone? Classical apologetics, what is it? Micah? It does not involve scripture. You're simply looking at the world around you. You're looking at science and biology and philosophy, etc. And uh, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Night after night, they pour forth speech. And such is the strength of that revelation that Paul in Romans chapter 1 will say, every human being is held responsible for that revelation and coming to the conclusion that God exists. And if they don't come to that conclusion, it's not for any lack of the revelation God has given in nature. And that's why classical apologetics has a place. It's not the only tool in the toolbox. And some people, in fact, I would say most people today, most theologians don't even like it as a tool. But I, I find value in it. Pastor Jason finds value in it. Uh, but we're moving from classicalism or classical apologetics into evidentialism. What is that? What is evidentialism as opposed to classical apologetics? Evidential apologetics, what do we mean by that? Is that Josh? Josh, go ahead. Okay, we are looking at the facts of history, including the scriptures, to come to a reasonable conclusion that the Bible is trustworthy and the message of the gospel is true. Whereas in classical apologetics, we're not using Scripture, we're using nature, or some people would call it natural theology. Now we're using revealed, or, revealed theology or special revelation. Whereas the whole world gets general revelation through nature, uh, those who have access to the Scripture have God's special revelation. And we're now going to use it. In evidentialism, we use it. And what are some of the subjects we take up when we look at evidentialism? What are some of the issues that we actually consider? Now, we're just getting started, but uh, for those of you who've seen the master outline and where we're heading, what types of issues do we talk about in evidentialism? Anybody remember? Archaeological findings and how they corroborate what Scripture says. Okay. What else? Okay, the, the radical claims of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead are more broadly miracles. And that's actually where we're starting our rev, uh, evidential study. Sure. Any others come to mind? Okay, historical and what would tie into that is uh, perhaps the manuscript evidence, the support for how well attested the New Testament is especially. We talked about how many documents there are how many copies there are, and so forth. Yeah, that's, that's a piece of evidence. 
or in the words of Josh McDowell, who's written a book and then it was revised later, evidence that demands a verdict. There's a lot of evidence, and when you put it all together, it's a case for Christ, to borrow Lee Strobel's phrase. How many have heard of the case for Christ? or the case for creation, or the case for this, or the case for that, right? Okay, what he's doing is evidential apologetics. What Josh McDowell does is uh, evidential apologetics. Whereas William Lane Craig and R.C. Sproul and guys like that do classical apologetics, somebody like Lee Strobel and Josh McDowell and a whole host of others will be more engaged in evidential apologetics. Now, as we tried to bring up the subject last week, foundational to evidentialism is supernaturalism. Miracles happen. And um, we have a few miracles listed here, or categories of miracles. First of all, the incarnation of Jesus. Miracle? For God to put skin on and become a member of the human race? Yeah, that's a miracle. Um, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Yeah, that's a miracle. In fact, we've called that the sine qua non of Christianity, the condition without which Christianity cannot be true. As Paul will argue in 1 Corinthians 15, without the resurrection, you have no Christianity. Okay, that's his whole argument there, or, or a good bit of his argument there in 1 Corinthians 15. Take the resurrection out of Christianity, you don't have Christianity left. The resurrection is a miracle, so we had better be able to have some facility in defending the possibility and reality of miracles. Because right off the bat, some people who have a naturalistic worldview as opposed to a supernaturalistic worldview will say miracles are impossible. So if miracles are indeed impossible, there is no Christianity. Okay? I mean, that's foundational and fundamental. Thirdly, the healing nature and exorcism miracles of Jesus. By my count, 26 healing and exorcism miracles of Jesus. And then throw in a few, couple, uh, a few involving nature, you know, where he's uh, multiplying the bread and the fish and he's, he's calming the storm and so forth. Um, the various miracles of the apostles. There are, there are quite a few miracles recorded that the apostles engage in, especially in the book of Acts. You see quite a few of those. And then, of course, there are a whole host of miracles from the Old Testament. Um, from cover to cover, the Bible's filled with miracles. And if miracles are impossible, that immediately undercuts the credibility of the Bible. So we want to get a handle on miracles. Now, um, I will, as, how to do this? As On the one hand, while I passionately believe in miracles and want to try to make a case for miracles, at least get started tonight, I also have to notice that the miracles that you find in Scripture are told with an amazing amount of restraint. They're there, but they're not overblown. Jesus will heal somebody and the first words have out of, out of his mouth, don't tell anybody. Now, if, if, I, if I healed somebody of blindness, whether it's with mud, word, or spit, you know, we talked about that last time. If, I mean, I'd call CNN. 
<laughs> hey, check this out. You don't find that in the New Testament. They wouldn't buy us right <laughs> because of their naturalistic worldview, yeah. Um, but uh, I, I find it amazing that unlike some of the other hero narratives of the ancient world where there's a lot of boasting in miracles, here the miracles are told with great restraint. And do you know what I mean by that? There's, there's almost not an embarrassment, but a humility in the way they're told. Yeah, Jesus did this incredible thing, and then we move on to the next thing. It doesn't, it doesn't linger there too terribly long. I think that actually tells us something about the character of Christ and the character of his father. Um, he didn't come to put on a show. Now, there was a purpose in those miracles in pointing and authenticating and verifying the credentials of Jesus. But I, I, think, I think right there is, is, is an application for all of us. Whatever gifts or abilities we may have, there is a cause for restraint and, and making sure that like a miracle is supposed to point to the Father, whatever we have, whatever gift or ability or in whatever way God uses us, works through us, it is to point to Him. So can we live restrained lives in that sense? Do, are you with me? Is this making sense? Um, I, I just kind of throw it in for free, but I think, it's, I think it's noteworthy. The miracles in Scripture are told for the most part with great restraint. Uh, occasionally, it's an off-the-charts, uh, like the book of Exodus, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and so forth. We'll take a look at that in a second. Um, and, and there's this accumulation of judgment. But even there, uh, the reason God doesn't take Pharaoh out in just one, swell, uh, one fell swoop like I would is, is because he wants to see repentance. And he's giving opportunity for repentance. But all that to say this, there's great restraint in the miracles that you find in Scripture. And I hope that we can, whatever power God gives us, use it with that kind of restraint and that kind of humility. Now, let's attempt a, a definition of miracles. Um, Josh brought up a very good question last week, and I, I, I kind of put them, or two weeks ago, I guess we had snow last week. Was that last week? I, I don't know. I don't remember what I had for supper tonight. But um, <laughs> um, brought up a good point. Is breathing a miracle? Well, context is everything. Let's, uh, let's venture into this territory. What is a miracle? Um, Wayne Grudem, who is a systematic theologian, has defined a miracle like this, and I think, uh, I think he's on to something. A miracle is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. A miracle is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. Now, Grudem continues, a little bit of a, a rationale for that. He says, this definition takes into account our understanding of God's providence. What does that mean? What is God's providence? Well, God's providence is where God preserves, controls, and governs all things. If we understand providence in this way, we will naturally avoid some other common explanations or definitions of miracles that you sometimes hear. And I'll give a few examples 
because this isn't the easiest word to define or get your mind around. We kind of, it's almost like, forgive the crudity of this analogy, but the Supreme Court one time had to make a ruling on pornography and they couldn't come up with a definition for it. They just said, we know it when we see it. It's a little bit, a little bit, I shouldn't even compare the two, should I? That's awful. But you see what I'm saying? It's hard to define, but you know it when you see it. Um, some insufficient definitions, and uh, we'll try to explain why. Uh, you sometimes see that a miracle is defined as a direct intervention of God in the world. Now, I think, I think I know what we mean by that expression. The problem is it almost implies a deistic worldview. Um, now, what, what in the world is deism? Wind it up and let it go. God is, God is real, but He created the world, He created the universe, set it into motion, and then walked away from it and is not involved in it anymore. He's not intervening in it anymore. And so to call a miracle an intervention almost seems to suggest that God hasn't been intervening at all up to the point of the, of the, the actual miracle which we would say is, no, that's not the case. God, who is omnipresent, who's everywhere always, is always at work. Uh, there is never anywhere where God is not. And he's at work. Jesus said, my father is at work all around me. Um, it may just not be at a miraculous level by this definition. So I, I think this definition, while I think I know what they're getting at, it, I think it falls a little bit short and can imply a deistic worldview. God is always, God's here now. God is here right now. And he's at work. Okay, now he may intervene miraculously, but he's here. Okay, a miracle is not just, you know, God's on his throne and he decides to do something really super cool and, you know, here comes and zaps the world. So anyway, I think this definition is just a little bit off. Um, the next one, God working in the world without means. That's the key phrase there, without means to bring about the results he wishes. <sighs> without means. Um, there are few, though, if any, of these types of phenomena in the Bible. When Jesus multiplies the fish, he's got fish to start with. He used means. Um, if you believe in the anointing uh, with oil, according to James 5 and, and praying over the sick. God comes to us through the stuff of earth. The ultimate example of that is the incarnation. God comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He's always using means. I guess the closest you could come is creation out of nothing. Uh, and that is certainly miraculous. But for the most part, the, Bible, the miracles you read about in the Bible, um, God uses means it's not that there's no means or instrumentality at work. There certainly is. When Jesus will heal, some, uh, sometimes he'll stick mud in the eye. Okay, that's the means. And then God does something incredible with that means, that mud. Okay, you with me? Does that make sense? Um, another one, uh, an exception to natural law. A miracle is an exception to natural law or God working contrary to the laws of nature or is in some way violating the laws of nature. Um, this, I think, uh, th this is problematic at a couple levels. First of all, I think it assumes that the natural laws work independently of God 
And that God has to break them for a miracle to occur. He has to do some sort of violation of what he has set in motion. I'm not sure that's the best way to describe it. If, if a principal of a school cancels gym in order to have an assembly, I don't think we would say that the principal has violated the schedule. I think we would say he's adjusted the schedule, he's modified the schedule, but he hasn't violated the schedule. Uh, it's his authority to do with that schedule as he sees fit. And he just said, no, Jim, today we're having an assembly. Now, if you're in junior high, that's a real bummer. But the fact of the matter is he hasn't violated the schedule. He's adjusted it. And I would say that when, when a, a, miracle, a miracle, miracle violates nothing, and when a miracle happens, God has graciously modified the schedule of the day, so to speak. And he is certainly has the authority and the prerogative to do that. One more uh, an event that's impossible to explain by natural causes. An event that's impossible to explain by natural causes. I don't like that really too much either. Uh, this definition potentially leaves God out of the equation altogether. Assumes that God does not use natural causes when he chooses to work in amazing ways. And it may even increase skepticism when answers to prayer seem to happen in ordinary ways. We prayed for the healing of my child, went to the doctor, got some medicine, and the child is well. And, well, that's, there's a natural explanation to that, but I wouldn't necessarily say that nothing supernatural has happened. Uh, I would say scientific discoveries, our God being a revealing God, scientific discoveries of things like medicine, uh, the revelations of God uh, to those who are seeking for cures and so forth, whether the person who finds it accepts it or not or knows it or not. Um, so I'm not sure I like this one either. An event Now, it, it, may, it may be impossible for us to, but, but that's not a sufficient definition. I'm not saying this is like totally wrongheaded. I just don't think it's sufficient as a definition. I, I, I much prefer Grudem's definition. Um, one of the ways you can think about this is, it, it, suppose you're in the deepest, darkest part of the African bush where electricity has not yet been discovered and nobody in the village knows about it. And all of a sudden, um, some of the nationals come walking out into clearance and there's this boombox blaring Lady Gaga tunes. Now, apart from my poor choice of music, there is no explanation to the national as to what, number, what is that. And certainly there's going to be no ability to explain that. You know, I'm from America and I can't explain it. <laughs> I certainly can't explain Lady Gaga. But even how a boombox works, there is an explanation for how it works. I just don't know what it is. But... But to the national in Africa, that thing looks like a miracle, doesn't it? From the national's perspective, this is a truly miraculous phenomenon, but it is not without explanation from the electronic engineer's perspective. Likewise, from the human perspective, some phenomenon are truly miraculous, but they're not with, without explanation from God's perspective. Just as that electronic engineer knows exactly how that boombox is functioning, 
what may be the most incredible healing to us without explanation that leaves even the best doctors baffled doesn't baffle God. Do you see the illustration, the analogy we're trying to make? So I, I much prefer uh, Grudem's definition. And let's go back to it just once again. A miracle is a less common kind of act, God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. That, I think, is a pretty good definition of how you see the key words for miracle being used in Scripture. Um, let's look briefly at some terminology here so we can get oriented to how the Bible describes these phenomena that we're talking about. Um, first of all, the primary words. The word sign... In Hebrew, it's the word ot, and in Greek, semion. It's that which points to something else. That's what a sign does. Um, you, you remember those signs on the road with an arrow? Um, Virginville, five miles that way, and there's an arrow. It point, a sign points away from itself. I, I, I got to preach there just for a second. <laughs> just for a second. A sign points away from itself. How many people in the body of Christ get hung up on the sign itself? Signs and wonders. and We have signs and wonders at our church. Yeah, but a sign is supposed to point away from itself to something else. And that's wrapped up in Grudem's definition. That's one of the reasons I like it. I think he's right. Well, to whom or to what? is a sign, a biblical sign, supposed to point? Anyone? Anyone? Shout it out. You're, like, Hannah, your mouths are moving and nothing's coming out. God! <laughs> or or in, in the case of Jesus, authenticating who he is. Um, a wonder, on the other hand. A wonder. You see those words, too. A mopeth or teros. Um, Old Testament, New Testament terms, an event that causes people to be astonished or amazed. Uh, it's the noun form of wow. <laughs> um, a wonder. Have you ever seen a wonder? You might have looked at Niagara and gone, wow. Or the Victoria Falls, if you've happened to, you know, get, get to Africa, it's, it's a zillion times better, I'm told. It's a wonder. The seven wonders of the world. But this actually goes even beyond that. This goes beyond something natural. Um, this is something that causes people to be astonished or amazed with the one who's behind the miracle, namely God. And you'll see those words in Scripture in reference to miracles. And then there's the word miracle itself or mighty work. It's sometimes translated geburah in the Old Testament or dunamis in the New Testament. An act displaying great power or, I mean, let's face it, Samson could do some mighty works. But when it's used in the context of a miracle, it's a divine work. Okay? So those are the words that are used in Scripture for miracle. And, and you can see, we'll, we'll give a, a, a few examples here. Especially the word sign is often accompanied with the word wonder. So you've got that which points to something else, namely God's activity, and causing you to go, wow. I mean, your mouth falls open in wonder. 
So that expression, signs and wonders, you see it quite a bit. Um, Exodus 7, 3, for example, but I will harden, God speaking, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, the rest of that is he's not going to repent. But there you see the coupling of signs and wonders. God is going to do something that points to his almighty power and people are going to go, wow. It's uncommon. This doesn't happen every day. That's the idea. Deuteronomy 6.22, before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. Here he's talking about the plagues, the plagues upon Egypt. And they're referred to as signs and wonders, and they're called great and terrible, depending on your perspective, depending on which side you're on. They're either great or terrible. But here again, signs and wonders come together. Psalm 135, verse 9. He sent his signs and wonders into your midst, O Egypt, against Pharaoh and all his servants. Uh, here again, these, uh, these plagues referred to as signs and wonders. Acts 4, let's go to the New Testament. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This is Acts chapter 4. This is the, uh, the apostles in action now. We're not talking about uh, God working through Moses or God working through his son, Jesus Christ. Here we're talking about God working through his, his apostles. Acts 5.12, the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Okay, so there you have it right out, uh, outright, the apostles performing signs and wonders. To make a name for themselves... No, that's actually a, a violation of the very definition of miracle. It's not to point to you. It's to point away from yourself. Uh, Romans 15, 19, what Christ has accomplished through me, Paul says, in leading Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done by the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul knew that the power didn't come from him. He knew the power of God was flowing through him. And he gives credit where credit is due. When Drew was very young, we had, this is a confession now. I don't know if you've, I've told the story or not, but we used to have touch lamps. Do you remember touch lamps? Touch them once, they come on. Touch them again, it gets a little brighter. Touch them again, a little brighter. I, I, I can't believe I'm telling you this, but <laughs> I had touch lamps in, in the old parsonage. And I remember Drew was a very young, okay, confession time. It's just, let's just open up. How many have had touch lamps? Okay, I don't feel so bad. Y'all looking at me so smug until we pull this thing. <laughs> and Drew discovered that, I don't know, I don't know how old he was. He was very, very young, two maybe. He was crawling around on the sofa and he touched the touch lamp and it went on. And he looked at his hand and smiled. <laughs> and he touched it again and it got brighter. And he smiled again, even more broadly. And then he touched it again. It got really bright. And he's, he's just like really happy with himself. And then he starts crawling around and touching other things. And nothing's happening. And he's get, he's, he started to cry. <laughs> I thought, what a sermon illustration. I've just been dying to use it. Here we go. Um, Paul recognizes the power of God flowing through him. It's not him. 
the power is not in his hands to touch. Okay? Boy, that's a good lesson for us to learn too. <laughs> um, poor little kid. He'd probably be horrified if he knew I just told that story. Anyway. Um, so in, in, in Grudem's definition, which I think is pretty good, um, and, and the pulling together of some of these terms, one more element, arousing people's awe and wonder. You see several places in the Bible. I'm just giving a few examples of where this shows up, but let me give you just a few more scriptures. Then we'll talk about the philosophical issues surrounding the possibility of miracles. Psalm 136, verse 4, to him alone, speaking of God, to him alone who does great wonders, his love endures forever. It's talking about God. God does the wonders. Exodus 15, 11, who among the gods is like you, O Lord, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Luke 4, 36, all the people were amazed and said to each other, this is with regard to Jesus. What is this teaching? It just cast out a demon. What is this teaching? With authority and power, he gives orders to the evil spirits and they come out. See how the people are amazed. It's like we were talking about this past Sunday morning. The word, when it says that they walked away from the Sermon on the Mount amazed, it's not just like, wow, that was really tr- intriguing. That was curious. That was different. That was kind of cool. I'll, you know, I'm, no, they went away thinking about it. They had to. They couldn't let it depart from the, It was so riveting, they just had to mull it over and, and essentially say, you know, as we, to update the modern prayer, is it me, is it me, is it me, oh, Lord, it's, or it is me, it is me standing in the need of prayer. What, I mean, such was the amazement of these people. So here again, you have Jesus doing signs and wonders and miracles, and, and people's mouths are falling open. And then uh, one more, John 2, 23, now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing, and they believed in his name. They believed in his name. Interesting. That was the whole point. Now, miracles don't always work. There were quite a few people who saw the miracles of Jesus, and they didn't believe. They didn't follow. They didn't become his disciples. But back to Grudem's definition. A miracle is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. And that definition does encompass the things we talked about, the incarnation, the resurrection, um, the healing and the nature and the exorcism miracles of Jesus. I think there's five exorcisms in the New Testament. He probably did more than that, but five are recorded. And again, always with great restraint. Don't tell anybody. Um, and there's not a whole lot of text devoted to exactly how he did it sometimes or, or even why. Or in, you know, we, we, we come to these texts in the gospel and we want more information. We want to make a film of this. We want to get our British actors and, and direct this thing into a film. And there's not, you know, you got to fill in some of the gaps because they're told with restraint. Um, now, more to the point... And this kind of goes to Josh's question, is breathing a miracle? Well, in the case of Jesus, who was dead and then started breathing, yes. Does that happen every day? A dead man comes back to life? No, it's uncommon. That that fits that part of the definition. But a baby who stopped breathing... And prayer goes out, the doctors go to work, and can't, put it like this, can, answer, can unusual answers to prayer be miraculous? 
can unusual answers to prayer be miraculous? The scriptural answer is yes. And I have some examples here for you. Elijah's prayer for fire from heaven. Does fire fall from heaven every day in response to a prophet's command? I don't think so. That's uncommon. But it sure did go, give those prophets of Baal a lesson in who the true God was. Elijah's prayer for the widow's dead son to come back to life. That, was, that began with a prayer. Elijah's prayer that the rain would stop and start later again. The early church's prayer for the release of Peter from prison. Acts chapter 12. These are supernatural answers to prayer. Unusual. Paul's prayer for Publius's father in Acts 20, uh, 25. That, that's, that's like a normal, what do you have, dysentery, I think? Um, well, there's nothing normal about it. <laughs> Um, it, it's, you know, one of those uh, that you would, that would show up on our prayer chain. You know, so-and-so's got this condition, pray for this condition. I, I'm actually encouraged by this. The scriptural evidence is that God can sometimes work in response or in harmony with his church's prayer to do the miraculous. Then let us pray. Okay, let me, let me stop there because we're going to get a little bit philosophical here in just a second. Um, and by the way, when I say pray, I, I, want, I want to close tonight by praying for things that only God can do. I mean, this isn't just an academic study. If we believe this stuff, what, what is in your life right now or in the life of someone that you really deeply care about and they, they, they just need God to do something uncommon that points everyone involved to him. Do you have any situations like that in your life? I see your nod. God bless you. Is there another? <laughs> um, I, I, we all have that, don't we? Do we believe this or don't we? Will we believe God? Now, God always has veto power. I'm not, there is no way in which you can make God your debtor. That's just not how it works. God's our loving Father, and sometimes His no is a yes to something better. Or sometimes His wait. <laughs> I think I like wait less than no. <laughs> I don't know about you. Uh, yeah, some of you can know where I'm going with that. Um, so, we've talked about the Bible's perspective on miracles, just in a very brief summary way. We've given an attempted definition, and we've talked about how Unusual answers to prayer can be miraculous, which I hope is encouraging to you. It is to me. So, but we're still, this is an apologetic study, so we have to ask the question, all right, that's all very nice, but is it possible? Do miracles really happen? There's a whole lot of people who don't believe they do. In fact, the primary objection to miracles is the assertion, the broad general assertion, that science has disproved Christianity. Now, if you were with us for the first part of this study in the classical apologetics when we did philosophy and science, and hopefully we've undercut that assertion, and at least even the playing field. I, don't, I, I hope so. 
I hope you came at the end of our study of classical apologetics and say, hey, you know what? Even without using the Bible, you can make a good case for the existence of God. So I would dispute this. But um, a guy by the name of Van Harvey said this, the biblical accounts can't be reliable because they contain descriptions of miracles. Science has proven that there is no such thing as miracles. So right there it is. For this guy, the presence of the miraculous in Scripture is, okay, I'm done, I'm done with the Bible. It, I can't take it seriously. What's your response to that? How would you respond to Mr. Van Harvey? Here's how Tim Keller responded. Embedded in such a statement is a leap of faith. <laughs> why would he say that? Keller's right, but why would he say that? Here's the statement again. The biblical accounts can't be reliable because they contain descriptions of miracles. Science has proven that there is no such thing as miracles. Jeff? Yeah, good, good. And we're going to spin that out a little bit as we go. Yeah, can you say that a little bit louder for... Yeah. We'll get into this a little bit more in just a second, but you, you can't prove a negative. You, you, can't, you can't prove an absolute negative. We'll get into that in a second. And especially in this context, um, actually what, what, uh, what Jeff is doing is bridging the philosophical and the historical. There's no way to take your scientific method now that exists now and go back in time and, and check these things out. So there's a problem. In other words, Van Harvey's making a leap of faith, assuming that if he took his scientific method back in time to the biblical period where you read about these miracles, he'd be able to disprove them with his scientific method. And says Keller, that's a leap of faith. Because you can't do that. Unless you have a, a, a DeLorean with a time machine in it. <laughs> yeah, um, um, Donna. <laughs> know who you are. Yeah, that is absolutely uh, flawless at this point. Yeah, and, and he's putting all of his marbles in the scientific method basket, that's for sure. Yes? Okay. And when, when we say that, are we saying the scientific method is bad? No, but it has its, who said that? It's got its limits. It works for the domain for which it was created. Can it work in every domain? Can the scientific method explain why you fell in love with your spouse? What were your first words to your sweetheart? I'm having a chemical reaction. <laughs> wow. Now, you might have been having some chemical reactions, but there was more to it. Okay, I'm not trying to be silly, but um, scientific method has its limits. <laughs> A guy by the name of Macquarie said this, science proceeds on the assumption 
that whatever events occur in the world can be accounted for in terms of other events, just as imminent, by which he means this worldly. You don't need a supernatural explanation for stuff. So, he says, miracle is irreconcilable with our modern understanding of both science and history. Miracle is irreconcilable with both science and history. Now, let me offer this rebuttal. Let's see if you think the rebuttal is sufficient. It is one thing to say that scientists by trade must assume a natural cause. Natural causes are the only kind its methodology can address. It's another thing to insist that science has proven there can be no other kind of cause. This is a philosophical presupposition, not a scientific finding. Did you follow me there? Let me say that again because it's important. It's one thing to say that scientists by trade must assume a natural cause behind whatever it is they're investigating. Natural causes are the only kind its methodology can address. It's another thing to insist that science has proven there can be no other kind of cause. That's a philosophical presupposition, not a scientific finding. In other words, Macquarie is saying that science, by its nature, cannot discern or test for supernatural causes, and therefore those causes cannot exist. But that argument is a bit like the drunk who insisted on looking for his lost car keys only under the streetlight on the grounds that the light was better there. Did you follow that? Alvin Plantiga, a philosopher, Christian philosopher, goes one step further. He said, Macquarie's logic, I love this, Macquarie's logic would insist that because the keys would be hard to find in the dark, they must be under the light. Do you see the analogy being made here? The scientific method as represented by the light in this analogy is, is right here. And so we can't go beyond that to find anything. It won't work. And so Macquarie is insisting that everything falls under a naturalistic worldview. And what we're saying is, time out. Your scientific method is valid for right here, but that's not the sum total of reality. Not in a biblical worldview, not in a supernatural worldview. There's a, a whole new world. Don't you dare close your eyes. Okay, you have that song in your head now. A world of, see, who's the narrow-minded one here? Who's the narrow-minded one here? Whose world is actually smaller? His. My worldview allows for broader possibilities than just what's under the street lamp. Okay, are we all together? Is that working for you? The other hidden, Keller says this, the other hidden premise in the statement miracles cannot happen is there can't be a God who does miracles. If there is a creator God, then there's nothing illogical at all about the possibility of miracles. After all, he created everything out of nothing. It would hardly be a problem for him to rearrange parts of it as and when he wishes. But notice how 
Van Harvey and Macquarie are trying to sneak in a philosophical presupposition and make it a scientific finding. That's problematic. And in so doing, they reveal their hand. They have a conclusion and are trying to work backwards from it. To be absolutely certain that God does not exist or a miracle has never happened at any time or in any place would require comprehensive knowledge of all things. True? This is what, what kind of where Jeff was leading us in his comments. I mean, is it really actually the natural implications of what he was suggesting? Um, the absolute dogmatic denial of any reality would require comprehensive knowledge of that reality. This is why atheism as a philosophy is problematic. Atheism is the deliberate, dogmatic, comprehensive denial of the existence of God. But in order to be absolutely certain that you're right, you have to have absolute comprehensive knowledge of every square inch of the universe. And say God is not here. That's why most people, most people, have backed off of atheism and have found their, their ism in agnosticism. Agnosticism comes from two Greek words. Well, a Greek prefix and a Greek word, gnosko, which means uh, knowledge. Uh, uh, knowledge. Gnosis means knowledge. You've heard of diagnosis, your diagnosis. We now know what you have. Oh, thank God. Now we can treat it. Diagnosis, knowledge. The A or the A in Greek is the negative prefix. No knowledge. A plus gnosko is no knowledge. In other words, I don't know. I don't know if there's a God. And so backing off, you, you really, it, it is actually intellectually dubious to be a rabid atheist because no human being will ever say, I have comprehensive knowledge of every square inch of the universe and can therefore come to the conclusion there is no God. So you have to back off of that to the more moderate position of agonosco um, agnosticism, by the way, from which we get our Latin word ignoramus. <laughs> I just throw that in for free. Now, please, I, I'm not saying that, that agnostics are all ignoramuses. I, I just think it's interesting that the, the two are related. But you see the problem here. Miracles have never happened. Have you observed every phenomenon in the universe in the history of the world? Obvious answer to that question, no. Then you have to back off your absolute statement, your dogmatic statement. See, isn't this interesting? This is fascinating how secular people can get very fundamentalistic in their beliefs. Isn't that interesting? I, well, I think it's interesting. can't know. Yeah, even, even those who would say, well, God may exist, but we can't know him. Because by definition, that which is infinite cannot be known by that which is finite. That's usually the logic that that takes. And my response would be that according to scripture, the finite cannot know everything about the infinite, but the finite can know what the infinite has chosen to reveal. 
and he's made himself knowable, especially when he put skin on and became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ, whose name in John chapter 1 is the Lagos, the word, the reason, the reason. Always be prepared to give an account of the hope that is in you. A reason. Always be prepared to give an apologia. That's where we get our word apologetics. For the reason, the logos, the hope that's in you. Okay. Other questions, comments before we get to C.S. Lewis's take on miracles? Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're speaking kind of in general terms here. Uh, it's, it's related to empiricism, which is an approach to reality that says reality is that which can be seen and observed with the senses, whether it be sight, sound, smell, touch, the observable world. I can't observe God. I can't empirically prove God, so he must not exist. If I'm dedicated to empiricism, now that would be my epistemology, how I know things, empiricism. That applied to the universe, the cosmos as we know it, plus empiricism equals naturalism. The nat- there, this is a closed universe. There is nothing outside of it. There's no supernatural being. There's no God, whether it's deistic or theistic. It's just that all that we see, smell, feel, taste, touch, that's it. Now, there's things that can be seen microscopically and, and, extra, and, and terrestrially. <laughs> Extraterrestrial. Terrestrially. <laughs> oh, that had to be Freudian. Um, so it's not just what I can see with my naked eye, but what can be perceived and seen. So um, now, you will get different disciplines defining nature differently. Um, Nature to a biologist, they would, in fact, biologists would define life in a certain way. Um, a sociologist would define it in a different way. But just broadly speaking, when we say nature and naturalism, we're saying the closed system in which there is only the material world and nothing else. No God, no nothing. Jason, you're the worldview expert. Do you want to add to that? Yeah, it's really fuzzy at the edges for those who do believe. Much like, uh, I, I hear what you're saying, and, it, and it's a fascinating discussion, a little bit tangential to this, but related in a sense, what is the relationship, for example, between the brain and thought? Have you ever pondered that question? What is the relationship between brain and thought? And where is the boundary? We still don't know the answer to that question. We're not even sure we can define thought. 
And that actually gets into the whole, we touched upon this a little bit in classical apologetics when we were talking about um, that which can be real that is non-material, uh, such as sets, numbers, uh, and so forth. The laws of logic. The laws of logic are non-material. Um, they're timeless. They're immutable. Um, which, which, by the way, that sounds a lot of bit like those are the attributes of God. So there are some things that are not observable like a law of logic, and yet who would deny its reality? The law of non-contradiction. Sonia, are you pregnant? She says yes. Tim, is Sonia pregnant? I say no. We cannot both be right. <laughs> we both, some, one of us had better be wrong. Let's <laughs> tell you that. But anyway. Um, so the law of non-contradiction, or the laws of logic, for example, they're, they're unseen, timeless, eternal, immutable, and yet unseen. But we would say they're very, very real. So that line, it's still fuzzy. It's fuzzy in philosophy and it's fuzzy in science. I, and I think that's interesting. A lot of thought's been given to it. Isn't that ironic? A lot of thought's been given to thought. Now that right there is a clue, folks. And C.S. Lewis picks up on it. But excellent question. I, I know I'm, this like, I'm skirting the issue, but do, do you want to just unpack that a little bit or add to it or shoot it out of the water? You're kind of going with what I was. I was just, basically what you're saying is we don't have a, not, it's, it's almost a relativistic definition because of our knowledge. Yeah. In a sense, that's right, except to this extent. We can't see angels. From our viewpoint, from our worldview, we can't see angels. At least, we can't see God. I mean, for a Christian, does definition really matter? Yeah, it's all a supernaturalistic worldview, and I would say yes, within that parameter. That's why I equivocated when Josh asked this question. It's a very profound question in, in the context of what we're talking about. Is breathing a miracle? Yeah, in one sense, because you did not create yourself. Did you? <laughs> you owe your existence, including your breath, to somebody else. Namely, mom and dad read. Where'd they get theirs? And you keep going back. And actually, we get into classical apologetics and an infinite regress of causes. But uh, here's how the Bible puts it. We did not create ourselves. He created us. We did not create ourselves. Okay, yeah, that's, that's, um, that's theism 101 right there. There's a creator and a creation, and the two are distinct. If you merge them, you've got pantheism, which is another worldview altogether. But excellent question. I would love to give more thought to the, the relationship between the brain and thought. And what is a thought? Where is it? What's it look like if it looks like it? It's a fascinating thing. But you, you would say that your thinking is real, wouldn't you? Unless you watch, anybody watch Inception? You're not so sure by Act 3? <laughs> okay. Some of you have watched Inception, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, if not, forget that. But um, you're, you would say that you're, how can I believe in a God I can't see? You believe in your own thoughts? Can you see them? I can see the effect of your thoughts. And you can see the effects of God. Okay. Thanks for the side. Yeah, Jeff, you want to jump in there? 
Yeah. Yeah, Grudem's little. Um, Before you get to the maze, though, there's something else, and it's the uncommon. Um, uh, yeah, and I, I grant it as much in the sense that um, it, it's, but that's more common, wouldn't you say, than somebody's reproductive organs being regenerated and being able to have a baby at 75? So that's a little bit more uncommon than the God work through the medicine thing. Um, call it a miracle small m, perhaps. I don't know. I'm not going to go to bat for Grudem necessarily. If you want to... You ra yeah, you raise a good... He's thinking. He's thinking. Did you hear that? <laughs> no, it's a, it's a legitimate... That, that's why Josh's question was so profound. Is breathing a miracle? I, every time I say that, these folks over Josh was profound. They get, the, that's a miracle. <laughs> but I, I, I see your point. Pardon me? <laughs> is that unco yeah, well, that's, that's, I think, wrapped up in Grudem's. Grudem's position is that it's uncommon in the sense that for Sarah or Elizabeth to give birth at their age, way past reproduction years, is a little bit more uncommon than I took amoxicillin and got rid of my infection. In fact, when I say I took amoxicillin and got rid of my infection, I don't have unbelievers around me going, wow, there must be a God. But you give somebody a hysterectomy and then they give birth, they might come to the conclusion, there's a God. <laughs> See, I, th I think, I'm guessing that that's where Grudem would come from. I I'm just guessing, but... Yeah, uh, Yvonne? Just a clarification. Well, both. Um, some will say these things never happened. Some will say people thought, you know, they, they had a... Can we agree that not everybody who claims to have been in a miracle or part of a miracle, I saw, I saw the statue of Mary cry. Okay? I, I don't... I don't even I don't believe in every claim to a miracle. Um, sci some scientists would say, some historians would say they're just not, they're not possible. They're not historically verifiable. They're not, uh, and so we look for an explanation somewhere else, outside the supernatural. Look for a natural cause. Some philosophers would just say they can't happen. Philosophically, they can't happen. So you've got, I think people will come from this from both directions. In fact, they will go so far as to say that in previous days, years ago, um, people were so superstitious, it was more natural for them, that's ironic, more natural for them to look for a supernatural explanation because they had no scientific method. They had, and actually what we're doing is, it's almost an ad hominem attack against people and being stupid. Um, 
Even Mary knew that you had to have sex with a man to get pregnant, and here she is pregnant. Um, can, can we agree? She probably knew that. She didn't flunk health class. And Joseph, too. Joseph had in mind to put her away. Why? Because it looks like she had committed adultery and violated the betrothal. And I, I think, uh, you know, th this almost super arrogant, yes, we know more than they did in some ways. But in some ways, I'm not so sure we have a leg up on them. Did, did that go, did that help at all? Yeah. Yeah. Is, is that God at work in a natural way using, uh, you know? Uh, I, I don't dislike science. I love science. And, and I hope I'm not coming across as unscientific or anti-scientific. Not at all. Um, I started college as an engineer before I got saved. Um, I'm not unscientific at all. In fact, some of your early scientists who actually developed the scientific method were believers. Maybe we should have a night on that. Um, some of the early Christians, were they, they believed that they could see at least the fingerprints of God on nature. And so they wanted to study nature. If the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows forth His handiwork, well then let's look at the, the heavens and let's look at the firmament and see God's artistry. How do we best do that? Well, thus the scientific method was born. And so some of the early scientists were believers. They, and one of, their prem, one of their main premises was the world is ordered. God is a God of order. And this world, especially since the discovery of calculus, anybody take calculus in here? I loved calculus, believe it or not. I loved calculus because you, calculus is a tool by which you can describe so much that takes place in our natural world. Everything from rates of exchange and tree population, reforestation, and uh, I mean, can you imagine science today without the tool of calculus? No. I know. Somebody dropped out at trig. I get that. I know. <laughs> but... Their, their underlying premise was this, this world is ordered because God is an artist. Artists don't just, good artists don't just throw stuff on a canvas. There's a purpose in the design. That goes to our teleological argument. So I don't know if any of that's helpful. So they're good questions, very good questions. But as for the provability of miracles, I just put the ball back in their court. Try to prove that a miracle's never existed. You can't do that scientifically. I would argue you can't even do it philosophically. Unless you are going to lay claim to having comprehensive knowledge of history and every event of the universe, you cannot make this claim that miracles are impossible. You can say they're unlikely. Grudem would agree. They're uncommon. But don't say they're impossible. Okay. Our time's just like 
what happened to our time? Um, Lewis, the essay there with, uh, or, or the part there about C.S. Lewis's, maybe I'll just leave that to you reading. The second time I include it in your notes. Um, how do I summarize that? Because I do want to spend some time praying um, for miracles. What's a miracle? Something uncommon that happens that points people to God. Yeah, I want to pray for healing so that so-and-so no longer has an affliction or pain. But more than that, I want to see people come to Christ through that healing or whatever. Are you with me? Lewis's argument is basically this. He's, he's actually dismantling naturalism as a philosophy. He's saying naturalism cannot account for itself. Now, that's interesting. Um, let me cut into, I think I read the first part of it, uh, let, let's at least get started. On page four, or page, page five. Yeah, bottom of page four, sorry. <laughs> His argument goes something like this. In order for naturalism to be true, I'm talking about C.S. Lewis in his book, Miracles. In order for naturalism to be true, it must account for everything. Yet the one thing naturalism cannot account for is the reasoning process necessary to establish naturalism. If a theory provided an explanation for everything in the universe but undermined the very thinking used to establish it, then it would either disprove the theory or make it very unlikely. If naturalism undermines reason itself, Lewis says, it would have destroyed its own credentials. It would be an argument which proved that no argument was sound. A proof that there is no such thing as proofs, which is nonsense. Yet naturalism does undermine reason itself. And if, if you're really interested in this, his line of thinking, you can pick up his book, Miracles. He's making a profound argument here. Naturalism itself can't account for itself. Everything happened by chance. <laughs> Everything came into being out of nothing. That's, a, that's, that's such a violation of the laws of logic. But okay, given that as a premise, well, if everything's here by chance and everything is materialistic, how in the world can you possibly trust your thoughts as being fully reliable? I mean, it's just... Do you see his line of reasoning? He goes on to say, naturalism offers what professes to be a full account of our mental behavior, but this account on inspection leaves no room for acts of knowing or insights on which the whole value of our thinking as a means of truth depend. This is a stroke of brilliance, folks. If only blind, unconscious material forces are working by chance within the closed box of nature, then what is the status of the conscious thinking being that arises out of that chance process? How can we have confidence in reason? Do we not need to somehow get outside the box? in order to see it and describe it clearly? In other words, somebody other than the fish needs to give us a description of water. 
because water is all the fish knows and it is so immersed in it, it doesn't even know it's immersed in it. But according to naturalism, we are chance products of that box and cannot get outside of it. Forces that are material working by chance might produce an ability to think in a way that was sound, but also more likely would give us defective, distorted reasoning abilities. So even if our reasoning powers were valid, we would never know or have an adequate basis to know that they were valid. So that includes all of your scientific bold proclamations. That there is no God and there are no miracles. Eh, maybe, maybe not. Who can know? I'm just having a chemical reaction. Thus, on a naturalistic foundation, all our confidence in the reason used to establish naturalism is undermined. This is incredible. This, this, Now, uh, there are three specifics that you can read uh, a little bit later, but th this is how Lewis tees it up and where he's going in his book, arguing with the naturalists of his day. Now, we have new naturalists today, and he had plenty of them in his day, and here's how he went about his task. You're, here you are picking apart miracles. Okay, we'll talk about it. But let's talk about your foundation, your worldview, your assumptions, your presuppositions. They're not as solid as you think. And that's an apologetic tool in the toolbox. And that's actually something called presuppositional apologetics. Let's look at your presuppositions. You're not coming from a neutral stance. I'll never forget, remember the first probe they sent to Mars and the reports came back, no life. And the scientists said, we didn't find life this time, but we're going to keep trying. What does that tell you? They weren't neutral. They wanted there to be life to find. They weren't like totally dispassionate. They weren't like these NASA Spocks. Or, or I can't do that thing with my fingers. Can anybody? Yeah, thanks. Josh can. You really are a mutant. God bless you. <laughs> can you how many can do that? Yeah, some of you can do this. You Trekkies. I just can't. I don't know. They don't, it doesn't work. Um, you, know, you, know, you know what I mean by Spock? Just the facts, just, you know, totally dispassionate, no invested emotion in anything. Folks, if the scripture's true, everybody's fallen and everybody has at least one presupposition. And that's actually the strength of presuppositional apologetics. As the naturalists are lobbing grenades at supernaturalism, Lewis says, hey, time out. Let's look at your foundation. It's got cracks all over it. That's presuppositional apologetics. We'll get there in time too. But this is how Lewis argues. He says, you've got, you've got nothing. You've got no more reliability than our faith. In fact, you've got nothing but faith either. And I'll tell you, folks, belief in nothing is still a belief. And just stamp a little scientific credibility on it or try, and all of a sudden you carry the culture. Somebody needs to expose it. When Mr. Van Harvey says, science has disproved miracles, he's making a philosophical statement, not a scientific argument. 
It has not been observed. Okay. Has, is that enough for one night? Questions, comments?